Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ben Greenfield, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tom. Welcome back, I should say. It's good to yeah. have you back. Yeah. Wait, so, I, I don't even remember. Am I am I a two-peat or a three-peat? I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, I feel like, three. I feel like this is my third time. I think so. But then you had to up and move. and, and uh, We're in an all-new yeah. location. However, for the audience, it's going to look exactly the same because we moved the set. Nobody so. needs to know except to know. I just stuck my foot in my mouth and gave the big reveal. No, We're that's not okay. In the same same spot. It is all right. Yeah. But... One thing that I heard in a podcast from you recently that I thought was really intriguing is you said, every day I'm trying to be less of a boy and more of a man. What did, did I say you that? mean by that? You oh, did. Oh, you wow. did say that. Wow. Um, well, I'm trying to remember what podcast I said that in or what the context I don't was. The, it was like, but, what are you... It was something about your future. Like, what are you trying to do with your life? I mean, it was like a real kind of legacy. Yeah, question. That, that that's interesting. Um, you know, because there is a certain element of childhood wonder and childhood curiosity. And even this idea that the things that made you weird when you were a kid are often the type of things that serve you as an adult because your unique characteristics, if you're really working as a self-actualized person, meaning that you have a distinct purpose in life. And often that distinct purpose in life is something that feeds on the unique skill set that you were born with. Mm. Then you're going to, you're going to retain some element of your childhood, or in my case, some element of my boyhood, right? So for me, I loved to read a lot and I loved to write and put thoughts to paper. I loved the outdoors and kind of like this idea of physical culture, but a curiosity about physical culture. Like, why does the body do this? Why do my legs burn when I go up this hill, but they don't burn when I go down the hill? Mm. You know, why, you know, do I, do I, you know, feel better when I'm playing tennis after I've had macaroni and cheese versus after <laughs> I've had nothing at all, you know? And so this curiosity about the human body and brain, a love for reading and a love for writing, and also I would say a love for teaching are things that really make me happy now in my current job, right? Versus, you know, some things that I've had to study that didn't come as easily to me when I was a boy, but that I still do as a part of my job now, yet derive less happiness from like math or science or the nitty gritty details versus the big visionary picture. So you you do have to, as you age, set aside some things from childhood. I mean, you know, there there are there are silly aspects of childhood. You know, everything from from impatience to um, to uh, you know 
arguing with others to, you know, defiance of authority, you know, and, and, and all sorts of little things that pop up as you're growing up. But yet I think that you need to strike a balance between forsaking the things from childhood that no longer serve you while at the same time staying really hyper-connected to the things that you're, you're naturally good at. How do people, um, that's interesting. So I bristle, bristle's the wrong word. It draws my attention every time you come back to this idea of naturally good at. Do you think that that's mm-hmm. something that really matters? Right, the whole Carol Dweck fixed mindset type of Yeah, and I won't even thing. drag you into yeah. that water. I just, I am, my, the central, one of the central questions of my life has been, how much does it matter that you started out with a natural inclination to something mm-hmm. and got a disproportionate return on your time investment and mm-hmm. how much of it matters just like this, this is my goal and I need to do the things that move me towards my goal. And I am hyper aware that there are some things for me, like we were talking before we started rolling, um, when you are given an IQ test, one of the things they show you is a flat piece of paper in two mm-hmm. dimensions, obviously, because it's just a test. And they draw lines on it and they say, fold this piece of paper. If you were to fold this piece of paper, what would the shape look like? And they want to mm-hmm. see what your spatial relations are like. Can you mentally manipulate an object in your mind, which I cannot do. Right. So you're like any, crumple up the paper, throw it in the wastebasket there. I made a basketball. I remember the first time I looked at that, I was like, wait, you're telling me that people can actually do that. Like yeah. they can actually imagine what something looks like just in their head. Right. And uh, shout out to Charlie Lee. And then I'll finish the thought here. I remember I was fascinated because I really wish I could draw. I've always been blown away by that. And I had a friend that could draw, Charlie Lee. And mm-hmm. he would draw all the time. And I was like, how do you draw it like in the, you know, the weird positions where I wouldn't have known to say the camera has moved? But that's the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Low angle, high angle from the back, whatever. And he was like, oh, just imagine what it looks like and then turn it in your head. And I remember thinking, what? <laughs> like, how, how the hell do you turn it in your head? So yeah. anyway, I'm not good at that at all. Right. So I wouldn't pursue, like when I think about learning to draw, I could get better, there's no question. But there seems to be like a real part of the the sort of skill set allocation of my mind that just was given to other areas and not to that. So I wouldn't try to lean into something where that was going to be really important for me. Mm-hmm. But I also don't only focus on my natural gifts. There are just other things that have been important to me enough that I'm like, this is going to be worth putting the energy, even though I might get a 0.7 return on my invested time where somebody else gets a 3x. Right, right. And, and so let's let's take someone who is skilled at art, at pattern recognition, at, at folding little papers, etc. And you're both tasked with learning that process of seeing what the pattern is that you're supposed to make or anticipating what the pattern would be when you're folding over the paper based on the lines that are marked upon it. If someone is naturally good at that activity, like we were also talking about this before we were recording, uh, both your wife and my wife, we we tend to um, or, or, or they tend to see in more patterns and they also would be like... Like my wife, for example, is dyslexic. She sees words as shapes and had a very difficult time reading growing up and also writing because, you know, rather than learning phonetically, she actually has to see every single thing as an image and as a shape, which you would imagine would kind of slow down the, the, the learning process via reading pretty dramatically. Uh, however, she is amazing at art and pattern recognition and imagery and visualization. And that's a skill that she naturally has probably because her brain is working in a different way and, and recognizing those patterns differently rather than learning phonetically. 
if you were to sit her and I down and give her that task that you described, she would learn it more quickly than me. It would come more naturally to her. However, I could still learn it, right? And, and I could still practice it and I could still become proficient at it. I totally sucked at math and science in high school. I hated it. It wasn't relevant to me. Um, I wasn't interested in it. It didn't really seem to come naturally to me versus like reading and write. I could, I could churn out an essay in no time flat, you know, sitting in front of a blank page and, you know, the, the same essay that, that would have left other students, you know, crying or scratching their heads or, or, you know, drumming their fingers or completely frustrated. And so I, I think that the acknowledgement that you are naturally good at certain things is, it's actually really important as a way of determining the things that you might be called to is your natural unique skill set that's going to serve others best. Can you define called to? Yes, I, I will momentarily. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that you can't learn other things. It just means that if you have identified that you're naturally good at certain skills, then I think that weaving those into your career will leave you feeling a little bit more, I guess, in the zone or self-actualized or even just more productive and impactful with what it is that you're doing or what it is that, you, that you've been called to do. When I say what it is that you've been called to do, what I mean by that is everybody was born with a, with a unique skill set and, and a purpose based on that skill set that I would say would be a calling, right? Like basically, um, you know, in my case, you know, reading, writing, teaching, love for the, the human body and brain and physical culture. I've woven all of those together into you know, writing cookbooks and studying the human body and teaching others via, via podcast or books or blogging or what have you. And I feel like time goes by really fast when I'm doing that. I feel like I'm in the zone when I'm doing that. I'm happy at the end of the day when I'm doing all of that. And I feel as though I am, I, I am heeding that call that I was born with um, myself, my wife and my my twin boys who are 13 now every night we we meditate we also meditate in the morning our our morning meditation is all based around what it is we're grateful for and who it is who we want to pray for or help or serve or send positive emotions to that day who it is we really want to be there for that day but in the evening we engage in self-examination and purpose Self-examination being playing your entire day like a movie in your mind, watching yourself in the third person like a character in the movie and identifying what did I do good, what could I have done better, and where was I most connected to my life's purpose? Where did I feel most purpose-filled? And it's a really interesting exercise because you know, the way that I explain it to my sons is watch yourself, watch that character in the movie, and ask yourself, when am I rooting for them? When am I fist pumping for them? When are they making the right decisions? And, and when do I really feel like they're the hero of that movie, that movie of the day? And that is the type of practice that you use to answer that question, what have I done good this day? Right, and then also, where are you not reading for that character? Where are you grimacing and thinking, "I think I don't." That's the wrong decision, dude. Don't don't go that way. Or you wasted a lot of time there, or you failed at that. And yeah, you learned from it, but you failed at that, and so that's an important lesson. Uh, and that serves as the fuel to answer the question, "What could I have done better on this day?" And then the final question 
which may seem at first like it's kind of like that what did I do good today question, but it's a little bit different. It's where was I most purpose-filled? Like where did I really feel as though I was living out my life's purpose? And typically that question is answered by watching that that character who's who's in the movie in your mind and identifying the place during the day where they just like they were fully present, had a smile on their face, time was going by quickly, they were doing what they were naturally good at uh, and 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 in a, in a very purpose-filled environment that is i think really really important when it when it comes to identifying those things that you are naturally good at or called to or that are purpose-filled for you i think that there if there's something that you learn that maybe didn't come naturally to you or that maybe you struggle a little bit more to wrap your head around. I, I don't think that that necessarily means that those activities can't be fulfilling or can't be a part of your purpose statement or what you might write down if you are identifying what it is that, that was most purpose driven at the end of the day. But I mean, for me personally, like it's pretty rare that I'll write down something in that purpose statement that isn't weaving in something that I've just been really, really connected to from youth that I think is a little bit more almost like nature than nurture. It's really interesting. The idea of purpose. Do you think that purpose changes over time for a given individual or is it really, (sighs) it's so anchored to something that you have a natural talent for that it's going to be relatively consistent? Purpose. So, so your purpose statement can change over time. I think the last time that I was on your show, I don't know if we talked about purpose statements, but my purpose uh, was um, to live an adventurous, joyful, and fulfilling life and inspire others in doing so. Something along those lines. Like every purpose statement should be like a single, succinct, preferably memorizable statement, Mm. right? Um, And I set aside that purpose statement a year and a half or two ago when I kind of was shifting out of like the Ben, the global adventurer off doing Ironman triathlons and Spartan races and, you know, beating up my body and inspiring other people. And, you know, not, you know, I, I love these guys, but I, I was realizing I'm not really like the, like the, the David Goggins anymore. And, you know, or, or the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the Dean Carnazzi's or the, the hundred uh, Ironman, cowboy guy I, for, I forget his name but you know basically this idea of going out and crushing myself as a way to inspire others and being the global adventurer who beats up my body and you know comes back to tell the tale you know the warrior life I didn't feel connected to that anymore yeah, honestly I was a little bit like tired and beat up and I'd been doing that for 20 years but I, I still love to to read and to write and to learn and to teach and to to create and and to to sing and to play and, and do all these things that felt really fulfilling to me. And so my purpose statement shifted. And literally my purpose statement became to read, write, um, sing and speak, compete and create in full presence and selfless love to the glory of God. Right. And so that that became my purpose statement. And yeah, it might shift in in, you know, five years, ten years, whatever. Yet I've found that every purpose statement I've created has in some way woven in something that I did really enjoy to do when I was a kid or something that, that wove in certain elements of my personality or my my natural skill set that, you know, puts a smile on my face and, and keeps me in the zone. So yeah, the purpose statement can change, but I think that the core activities or skills that you're weaving into the purpose statement are probably going to stay somewhat consistent through life. 
Do you think that's because we're getting some sort of feedback loop from the what I'll call disproportionate returns? Like when I put time and energy into this thing, like it it comes more easily to me than it might to other people. And that feels good. The sort of effortlessness, maybe it's mm-hmm. getting into flow. Right. Um, or is it something else? I I think that um that that idea that something comes easy definitely gives you insight as to what is really going to fuel your purpose. If there's something that comes easy to you that you recognize doesn't come easy to everybody, right? Like in my case, writing, like I said, you can put me in front of a blank page and not only will I fill that page, but time will go by very quickly while I'm doing it. Like, like, you know, I'll write for 20 minutes and, or, and, and, or I'll, I'll write for hours and feel like it's been, you know, 15, 20 minutes or whatever. Like I can write and write and write. And it's almost like you got to pull me away from writing. And it, it doesn't feel very effortful. There's some effort put into it, but it just comes easy to me. It flows. And you put my wife in front of a blank page and she'll just be like crying after 10, 15 minutes because she just doesn't know what to do. Mm. Flip that scenario, put me in front of an art canvas with a paintbrush. And yeah, I might make something, but it's not going to be anywhere near the masterpiece that she'll create. And so I, I think that there is something to this idea of what comes easy to you, what is effortless to you to a certain extent, and what puts you in the flow as being something that gives you a great big fat clue about your purpose statement. That being said, I think that that doesn't mean that when you're self-actualized and living out your life's purpose statement, that all of work is play, that that you never feel as though you kind of have nose to the grindstone and, and you're... You know, you're, you're sweating a little bit and, and it's hard work and you're tired at the end of the day. But for me, it's a different tired at the end of the day when it's tired at the end of the day with a smile on my face because I know I've been super connected to my life's purpose all day versus tired at the end of the day because I've been grinding against something that I'm not really naturally that great at. Right. It's interesting. So, so much of what you're saying resonates with me. I think it's really powerful for people to have the self-awareness of what they're good at, what comes easily, what brings them joy. And maybe the barometer of, did you love it when you were a kid is a good way to find those things. But my life has been, um, it's because every life is an end of one experimentation and hopefully we all sort of look at everybody's input and I'm certainly not trying to reject anybody's notions. I'm trying to figure out what they can offer me. So here is, cause I think what you're saying probably feels more intuitive to people. I think more people gravitate towards that, which is partly why I've explored the other edge. Uh, and then my life has just been a reflection of it. So mm. I, when I graduated, I, from the time I was 12, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. That was all I wanted to do. And went to film school, totally a joyful experience. Um, But at the end of it, I realized I didn't have any talent. And that was devastating. And I'll define talent. So I, with all of my focus, energy, and the assistance of an entire university, arguably at that time the greatest film school on planet Earth, I was not able to turn out a good film. And that that was devastating in ways that I can't explain. Hmm. And... The only way that I could begin to claw my way out of a downward spiral, I don't think I was ever truly depressed, but I used to come home and just lay on the floor to give you an idea of like, this was a very dark period for me. Mm -hmm. And I would just lay there like, 
I knew what I wanted. I know what my dream is and I have absolutely no idea how to get it. And it really felt like the universe had said, well, you suck at this thing and therefore you're just never going to make it. And that, that was, you know, this is all what late nineties, early two thousands. So there's no internet, there's no like easy access to people that can give you sort of these nuggets of wisdom that'll help pull you out. So I'm laying there like, okay, what the hell am I going to do? And I wish I could remember what, what gave me the insight to learn about the brain but I thought, all right, I'm going to start researching the brain. Mm-hmm. And I came across brain plasticity, which was extraordinarily debated in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, is it real? Like, can you really change as you get older? And because it was debated, I made a decision to, even if I was wrong, I was going to act as if brain plasticity were real and that I could learn anything. And that meant that I could get good at filmmaking, even if I wasn't currently good at filmmaking. And then that, when I went and um, tried to get into that, still couldn't break in, even though I believed that I could get better over time at this point, um, led me to business. And in business, I really had no instincts. And mm. I remember I was talking to Gary V, and he was trying to like trap me by saying, no, 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 you really were, because his whole thing is it's what you're born with. And he was like, no, see, you really were a good entrepreneur. You've just never been in the environment that brought that out before. And I was so bad at business in the beginning that the only contribution I could make to a conference call was to say goodbye. And I remember mm-hmm. I would get excited. I could tell the call was wrapping up and I'm finally going to get to say a word on here. Right. And that's where I started. And it trying to learn business plunged me into anxiety because I was constantly in over my head. I did not get disproportionate returns. It was a brutal fucking slog. But now on the other side of learning that thing, it, I'm obsessed like I now for me, I realize this is all a game of solving puzzles. Once you understand the physics of the situation, you can think from first principles and anybody, I don't care what your natural inclinations are. You can learn to think from first principles. Yep. Once you're at the layer of first principles, now you can build up in any industry. Yeah. I think one of the keys there too is relevance. Meaning when I was hating math and science in high school, a big part of that is that it wasn't relevant to me. I didn't see a lot of the crossover of, of calculus or of, of, you know, um, you know, trigonometry and, and, and sine and cosine and, you know, all these variables to real life. And when I got to college, I, I remember my first year, I had a fantastic math instructor. And, you know, I, I was homeschooled K through 12. And so my math curriculum in high school for a couple of years was under tutelage via a, a, an instructor. Oh my gosh, his name was Chris. And I hated when we had to drive the half hour from Lewiston, Idaho, up to Moscow, Idaho to go to Chris's to learn math. I would get in trouble because I didn't care about math. I didn't do the homework. And it was super annoying because because Nina, who who was another you know homeschooled classmate of mine, would drive up with me and she was just like straight A's, just crushed it. And, you know, and it came easy to her and and flowed. Whereas like, not only did it not come easy to me, but I didn't freaking care. Like, I just didn't see the relevance at all. Like, where's the crossover to this? And, you know, into whatever tennis and, and making food and, um, and, 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 and art and writing and creativity and all the stuff that I really did love. First math instructor in college, he started to talk about math from a banking and investing Mm. and an interest and compounding interest and wealth standpoint. Well, for me, you know, 
I've I've always kind of been into making money. You know, like I used to after I'm actually ha- really surprised after by Halloween, that. I would take all my candy, I would hide it under my bed until the summer came around, and then I would take all the candy out, lay it all out, put price tags on it, and sell it to all the neighborhood That's kids. Genius. It, you know, I, I I started investing when I was thirteen. What? You know, I, I I loved in and part of it, you know, maybe, and I've identified this in myself: a slight spirit of scarcity versus a spirit of abundance. Me, uh-huh. I just. You know, I think I kind of liked to hoard wealth when I was a kid, and and now I've kind of I've kind of directed that energy or that interest in wealth a little bit more towards a spirit of abundance and sharing and blessing others and, and giving and charity. However, that math instructor teaching math through the lens of wealth generation totally transformed my interest in math, made it super relevant for me, and I remember when. Nina, who was in that class, homeschooled with me, went to the same same college, at least for the first year, took the same math class together. When she showed me her test score, like a semester in, and I showed her my, my test score, and my test score beat her test score. Mm. And I got straight A's in math and science all the way through college once science became relevant to me because science was relevant to the body, the brain, to biochemistry, to microbiology, to all these things I was learning about the human body because I wanted to be a doctor. And math became relevant because I could apply it to chemistry or I could apply it to wealth preservation or, or making money. All of a sudden, I actually did become quite good at those things that I don't think I was, I was that naturally mm. good at. But, but the relevance was a key. And so I, I think that's part of it, too, is you must understand the importance and the relevance. And, you know, with my own sons who we homeschool, you know, slash unschool, for me, a big, big part of it is how can I make this book, this lesson this this language learning excursion whatever it is relevant to them now they are boys and i and i know we've come a long way since your initial question but i think that that part of that question that you asked about me wanting to set aside things from from boyhood was driven in part by my sons because i have identified the distinct lack of a ceremonial recognized rite of passage from boyhood into manhood. I think that as a result of that, we have many irresponsible men walking around who are still, although they have men's bodies and they look grown up, are stuck in boyhood, stuck with what we might call Peter Pan syndrome, right? Still questioning, am I a man? Am I ready to provide? Do I need to go out and prove myself in some way? And, and you know, for me personally, that was just like doing 20 years of Ironman triathlon and Spartan races and bodybuilding and trying to look like, you know, the, uh, you know like, like a real true hardcore man because nobody ever told me when I was a teenager, like, you're a man now. You're ready. Yo, stamp of approval. You're ready to provide. You're responsible. You can survive. And, uh, you know, this is somewhat controversial, but women arguably actually do have a time of their life that they go through when they are undeniably becoming a woman, right? The onset of menses, when they have their first period, when, when they go through that physical change that's, that's very, very 
distinctly a sign that they are becoming a woman. And many will say that that another kind of formative part of that for a woman is when she's given birth for the first time. Right. That'll get your attention. Um, now, yeah, I think so. I think my, my mom told me once, Ben, this would be like peeing out a watermelon. And, and that, that made sense to me when I was a boy. Okay, mom peed out a watermelon. That must, that must have hurt. Um, with, with my sons, I wanted to break that cycle of the green filled men never knowing when they become men and kind of just trying to prove it along the way. The reason I think that's so important is because when we look at the epidemic of say like, you know, fatherlessness in America, I think a big part of that is driven by boys living in men's bodies who don't have a great deal of responsibility who feel like it's it's okay because I you know I'm Peter Pan I'm a young boy I don't need to provide I don't need to protect I don't need to take responsibility for my decisions therefore I can you know basically knock up this lady walk away leave her with the baby and you know go off and find my next new adventure because I'm a boy I play for a living like that that's what I do when you reverse that and you weave into the upbringing of our males this idea that has been really a, a part of many, many cultures for a long period of time. We see it more often now in, in more, you know, indigenous cultures, tribes, you know, hunter-gatherer, you know, um, tribes, you know, to a certain extent, you could say that the, uh, you know, like like in, in, in Jewish culture, you know, maybe, maybe a bar mitzvah is a, a little bit like this. Um, but ultimately, in most Western cultural context, we don't have this idea that there's something hard a so-called rite of passage that a young man or even arguably a boy goes through that recognizes their transition into either adolescence or their transition into adulthood. Mm. I did not want my sons to go 20 years of either doing some kind of hardcore masochistic sport to prove to the world that they were a man or worse yet, making other decisions that they regret later on in life because they were still living like a boy. So both of them, you know, and, and this is fresh on my mind. What is it right now? It's uh, uh, August, right? Mm -hmm. And so back in March, they both went through their rite of passage into adolescence How old at were they? 13 years old. Okay. Right. So their rite of passage into adolescence involved... Uh, them going off into the wilderness for five days. They had a backpack and by a wool blanket and a knife. Now, this was facilitated by an organization in Idaho that specializes in, in fostering boys' rite of passage mm -hmm. into adolescence and adolescence' rite of passage into adulthood. And so, what so they'll that, do something like this twice. They'll do this again when they're 14 or 15 years old at an even deeper, harder, more intense level. But this last one that they did was the rite of passage into adolescence. So there are survival instructors there traditionally. And I learned this as I was studying rites of passage. The rite of passage is not overseen by the father, right? It's overseen by an uncle or another member of the South tribe or, or to make sure or some what, type of male leader. Cheat or help them you know, along. I, I, I don't know if, if that's part of it. I suspect that the bigger part of it is in a way it's a little bit of a cutting of the cord, Right. And mm -hmm. so if you're dependent upon a parent, an immediate parent, while going through rite of passage, I think it doesn't create as as independent a scenario mm -hmm. as if it were fostered by someone else. So 
in this case, they've trained a, a, with an organization called Twil, Twin Eagles Wilderness School since they were six years old. They've been visiting that school for summer camps, for wilderness survival camps. Knowing this is building up to this right no, of passage. No, not, not knowing that. They didn't know about their right of passage. It's actually a, a cool story. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you more momentarily. But it wasn't really revealed to them what they were doing until literally a couple months before when they got their packing list and a letter that offered them the opportunity to do this and also gave them the choice of whether to accept or to turn down Oof. their invitation to what be in this What would you have done if they turned it down? Well, the letters came in the mail and it was really, really nice the way they did this because they're like old parchment paper and it's kind of burnt around the edges and has a real kind of rustic feel to it. And they both, I remember they're sitting on the front porch in the sunshine and they both opened these letters and it just basically spelled out this idea that, that you know, coming in March... There is, uh, there, there is basically a challenge that you're going to be given that will be a part, a key integral part of your transition into becoming a man. And you know, you'll need to bring a backpack, a wool blanket, a knife. You'll have uh, these, you know, the, these calls and these trainings that you go through with some of the instructors prior to showing up out here in the middle of nowhere in North Idaho. And all you need to do is basically, you know, uh, call this. I, I forget if that one was call a number or write an email to actually be accepted into the program. And they both said yes. And, and they both had been training with that organization, again, since they were six. They know mm -hmm. fire making and shelter building. But really, the fire making, shelter building, wilderness survival, like, yes, those are core skills that you want to have. But really, the key part of the rite of passage is being alone, facing your fears, finding yourself in a space where you must dissolve your your ego and and understand that there are forces of nature that are more powerful than you and that you 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 really um you're you have to set aside a lot of pride and and a lot of egotistical mentality to be able to just go off and be on your own and be with yourself in that in that set and setting so they accepted it. They went off. They they did the whole rite of passage uh, in March, and there were about eight other young men who were there at the special place we dropped them off, which was called Medicine Circle. My last memory was, you know, when when they came in, we dropped them off. The instructors met with us parents for about an hour, an hour and a half, and and just basically felt out our emotions, what we were feeling, saying goodbye to our sons, knowing that when we saw our sons again, it was going to be different because, you know, for example, we don't call them boys at home anymore. We call them young men. They're given more responsibilities. They're given more chores. They're considered to or, or um, expected to be more contributory members to the household in terms of the level of the chores that they do and um, the, the responsibilities that they're given at the house. And so... My memory, though, was these instructors came up. You know, our sons were facing us. They step across this this cedar bow into the medicine circle. They face us. They get blindfolds on. And you know, my sons told me the next five hours, all they were doing was following a drum through the wilderness, blindfolded, having no clue where they oh. were going. And the next five days were everything from, you know, Native American-style sweat lodges to sleeping on your own out in the wilderness to, you know, surviving to meeting with these instructors and having, having circles where you talk a lot about, you know, about what it means to, to provide, what it means to transition from boyhood into manhood. And um, 
it was super special when we finally went back to pick them up after not hearing from them for five days because they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell phone or connections or anything out there. And there was a final ceremonial fire gathering where, you know, all eight boys stood before us, their parents, and they all gave a speech about who they were when they came in and who they were now, what their shadow self was that they had set aside and who it was that, that their was their true self that had emerged. So that was the rite of passage into adolescence. And when I get home from this trip in LA, uh, they have their gathering feast, which means that they have a whole bunch of friends and family members over. They prepare a meal. There's a celebration. They give gifts. And that's really a key is you don't just go out and like, let's say your son is going to go do a rite of passage so that they're able to better set aside those things from boyhood. It's not just go out and do hard shit, right? Like it's an actual ceremonial recognition afterwards and leading up to the experience that says, yeah, this this is a hard thing, but this isn't just for, you know, for shits and giggles, right? Mm -hmm. This is for you to show that you're seriously and responsibly taking yet another step towards manhood. And this is for us, your parents, to show that we are we're releasing some of our, you know, our, our, our desire to just basically, you know, care for you and recognizing that you're now better able to care for yourself. So, uh, you know, in a sense, I think we've, we've come a little ways in responding to your first question, but that's, that's what I really mean when I say transitioning from being a boy into being a man not leaving aside those things that we've been talking about, the things you were good at when you were a kid, but embracing responsibility and and, and going through some type of recog- recognition, some type mm-hmm. of rite of passage that shows that you're ready for that. Did you and your wife react differently to them being taken out and going through this? You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to 
make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. So I don't think my wife really realized the, um, almost like the, the seriousness and importance of the entire thing, because she'd seen me and my son's river and Terran going off to wilderness survival camps and going off and doing Spartan races and triathlons together. Like we've just kind of always done those type of hard things together. But I think what she didn't realize was how ceremonial Mm -hmm. this was and how important it was that we recognize that they really are truly going through a formative part of their lives. And after those five days that we weren't going to be treating them the same way and that they were going to be different people. And that was, and that it was really important that they understand, you know, in terms of the way that we speak to them, the way that we address them as, as young men, not boys, that that was going to be an important part of the Greenfield house afterwards. And I think when she saw those blindfolds go on <laughs> and, and, you know, and these big, like kind of tough looking instructors, you know, to, mm. you know, take our sons off and she's not going to talk to him for five days. And, you know, you 
and, and that's when she started, we were walking down the long path back to our truck, you know, through, through the area outside of North Idaho and medicine circle there where we left them and she starts crying. And I think that was when the kind of like the importance and seriousness and epicness of this experience began to, to strike her. Whereas because I, you know, for example, when we have like family vacations, I'm always the planner and, and, you know, I'm planning out the, the flights and the hotels and the restaurants and the excursions, and the experiences and everything. So I had been a, a bigger part of working with the instructors to make sure that you know, all the ducks were lined up in a row for this rite of passage, whereas she was just kind of like, okay, you know, boys are, are going to go off and do something hard. Mm-hmm. So for her, I think it just hit her all at once, like a ton of bricks, you know, oh, my sons are becoming men. And, um, for me, it was more of a culmination of all the things that I've done with them leading up to this point and then trusting for them to go off and do this on their own now. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was a little bit different for her. Um, and I, I think for, for mothers in general, you know, they, they like for, at least I've witnessed this in my own life, they like for their sons to be comfortable and cared for and, you know, not hurting and not alone and not scared. And so I, I think it was hard for her knowing that, you know, little Taryn was huddled up in a debris shelter somewhere, you know, in the dark with bears around all by himself, you know, with a wool blanket and a knife and just figuring out how to survive for himself. Mm. Um, perhaps I'm a little bit more calloused or jaded or whatever, but I just, I just thought it was cool that, that, that my sons were getting a chance to, to really face their fears and become men. My gut instinct is that it has nothing to do with you being callous, though you may be. Uh, in most of these rituals, when you really look into the more traditional cultures, it's there's a, an almost ceremonial removing of the child from the care of the women. Like that's mm-hmm. part of it. Like you're with the women, they come and get you, they mm-hmm. remove you, and then they take you out to do whatever this hard thing is. And that is very, very fascinating. And look, I don't know nearly enough about this stuff, but when I say that it captures my imagination, that would be a true understatement. Um, I read the book Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela, long time listeners. Mm-hmm. This show will probably be tired of not to be talk confused with Long Walk by Stephen King, which definitely <laughs> not to book. be confused. Yeah, those would be yeah, that, very, although that's, that's very an, different. it's kind of a relevant book well, to our scary, discussion, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the book, he he legitimately went through um, his tribe's um, coming of age ritual and. I found it utterly fascinating and I don't claim to understand it and I need to research it more, but here are the parts that I remember. And if anybody um, watching this knows better facts, drop them in the comments, but um, they would strip these boys naked. I think they were 14. Mm -hmm. They sit them down on the ground, spread Eagle in front of the whole tribe. And then uh, an elder or um, the tribe leader, I don't remember who it is, comes up with a really sharp fucking rock. They grab your foreskin and they just cut that shit Mm. off. And when they do it, you're supposed to scream this warrior prayer. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they cover you in clay, like head to toe. And then that night, a woman comes and like slowly removes it all. And I just thought, whoa, like there's something there. There's some like communication. It's almost between. like a rebirth from the yeah, clay. Yeah, like, oh, it's fucking. Yeah. And it's just so interesting to have the chills that they there's something about the you know the breakdown in their society of the roles of male and female and that it's the woman Mm -hmm. that ultimately comes and like washes you and sort of you know either the moment of rebirth or the sort of putting back together i don't know i just found it absolutely fascinating yeah I, i think there's there's some savagery that has been a part of many cultures rites of passage that i don't think is necessary and that 
you know, in I, a modern I, context, I you mean, or even back, a lot, a lot of insights. Well, primarily in a, in, in more of an, an ancient context, I would say there are there are you know aspects of modern psychology that we have that we're now well aware of related to post traumatic stress disorder and traumatic events that dictate that if a rite of passage is just a, a terribly torturous event, I think that that has potential to wire the cells up into sympathetic nervous system mode, like that constant fight and flight, super wired up type of approach that could leave someone, you know, scarred for life to a certain mm -hmm. extent, um, either physically or psychologically or both. Like, you know, I, I like to read my son's Wild West stories. And there was one Wild West story reading about a, a Native American tribe that, you know, a little bit similar to the story that, that you've just told would take the young men and pierce their skin with hooks and mm -hmm. hang them from the inside of the of, of like a big lodge and then they would attach chains to those hooks and hang buffalo skulls from those Whoa. chains so they were like pulling the skin away and then the elders would twirl these hanging sons you know with, with poles you know around and around so the buffalo skulls are weighing them down and pulling at their skin and eventually like the skin basically just like tears and they fall to the ground uh -huh. and they have to like run through the village, dragging the Buffalo skulls through the village until all the Buffalo skulls have come off and torn away from the skin. Jesus. And any that do not tear away, they send them off into the field and they just have to basically drag the skulls around the field until they all just like fall off and the wounds are festering and the flesh is rotting. And then when they come back, if they really want to take things to the next level, as if that weren't enough, yeah. they chopped off like the pinky or the index Whoa. finger to, to prove that they were, they were an actual warrior. Well, you put somebody through all that. And I, I guarantee that, especially in a, in a modern day context, um, you're, you're going to have, you know, some, some possible post-traumatic stress disorder from yeah. something like that. Uh, contextualize that or, or, or compare that to like the woman who got in trouble in New York City a few years ago uh, for leaving her son about 20 miles from home uh, in a subway station after he had you know grown up traveling on the subway and knowing where their home was and knowing New York he? City. I think he was like 12 or 13, like not super uh -huh. young. He may have been younger, but either way, she left him there as a sort of rite of passage, and his role was to get home, right, to figure out how to buy a subway ticket and take the right line and, and walk from station to station and eventually wind up at the front door, which he did. But word got out about this, and she got in a lot of trouble for, you know, how, how dare you allow your son to navigate through the city? What if he was kidnapped? You know, right. what if something horrific happened? What if, what if he got lost and never made it home? You know, whatever. But I actually think that... You know, that's the type of modern day rite of passage, especially for, for more of an urban setting that I'm not necessarily against. You know, I, I think that when you get to the point where there's physical damage and potential for death, you know, in, in, a, in a very profound way and, and, you know, something different than just like finding your way home on the subway station. I think that there are many examples of rites of passage that we could come up with that still recognize that, Oh, you're a man now, or, Oh, you're responsible now, or, Oh, you're an adolescent now that don't involve just like pain mm. and torture and some of the things that we've seen in, in, in some cultures. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there has to be some level of discomfort. I mean, you know, 
like I'm, like I said, you know, I, I think that a big part of, for example, me going off and doing Spartan races and obstacle course races, getting barbed wire wounds and traveling around the world, doing all these Ironman events and everything. Yeah. It was great for learning about fitness. It was great for, you know, inspiring people to fitness. It was great for practicing what I preach and for learning how to be a better coach. Cause I was coaching people doing these events, but yeah, a big part of it was, Hey, am I a man now? Yo, I just did the harder Iron Man. Am I a man now? <laughs> like, how do I feel now? Do I feel like I've proven myself now? And never did I really reach the stage where I felt as though I'd, I'd really proven much at all. You know, for, for me, it's just been a gradual realization that, you know, that I am a man, that I can set aside the things from boyhood, that I'm a father, that I'm a husband, mm -hmm. that I have a greater sense of responsibility. But, man, it would have been super nice for me to have been – given that recognition when do you I think that's it it just needs to be formal that somebody because yeah. part of all this to me is like one you have to define what a man is which you rattled off a few things earlier mm -hmm. that i assume was your definition of what a man is but so knowing what the target is so knowing whether or not you hit it and then putting you through something where it's like okay you're now like this is the official line right right it, it, it's like i could have taken my sons out to do whatever like whatever Spartan San Francisco and AT&T Park, right? <laughs> and technically, you know, if we had had like six months of training leading up and chats at the dinner table about, you know, guys, when we do this, when we finally cross the finish line there in the park, like that's going to be our, our official like mm -hmm. coming of age ceremony into adolescence. And th this is a big deal. And we're going to prepare for this. And we're going to have a special like feast or dinner or fire circle when we get home from having done this. There, there's no reason you couldn't take, you know, a fabricated event like that and turn it into a rite of passage in the same way that there are organizations like that Twin Eagle School I was talking about that's, you know, really, you know, fabricating what could also be just like five days of wilderness survival learning, but instead turning that into a ceremonial rite of mm -hmm. passage. Right. So I think that the ceremony and the recognition is a big part of it. And what's interesting, actually, is, is you see a lot of these cultures will um, weave in. And this is kind of related to like the ideas that um, that Jamie Wheel talks about, the author of the book, Recapture the Rapture or um what, what, what's the book that he and Stephen Kotler wrote? Stealing Fire. Uh, Stealing Fire. This idea of um, hedonic calendaring. And the the strategic use of certain plant medicines at certain formative times of one's life. I was actually, I was interviewing Jamie and I think it was he and I that were talking about this. Like, you know, rite of passage into adulthood is accompanied by some type of ego dissolving plant medicine ceremony. Maybe the first, you know, week or the first month that you're a newlywed and married to your wife, you're doing some type of plant medicine or MDMA-esque type of protocol where you're facing each other, you know, in bed and going through like that, that full coming together as part of a plant medicine ceremony, or perhaps when you turn 30 or turn 40 or turn 50 or like formative birthdays, things like that. And you also see some of that woven into some of these cultures, like, mm -hmm. like the use of some type of plant medicine experience. Because if you think about it, a big, big part of that is dissolving the ego and, and learning about yourself in that state. Will you define dissolving the ego? Basically it would be, um, is it dissolving there, thinking that I'm cool? It, no, it's so there was this lady and she just wrote a book. I was reading, um, I was actually reading the book summary of this book, but I now want to read the book. She apparently like via what I think was a stroke 
completely lost the use of the left hemisphere of her brain and wound up writing a book about left right brain hemispheric activity mm. and how it felt to be just in the right brain and it was as though she she lost a lot of the the logical rational um thoughts that tend to just be fluttering through our minds all day and was just like floating in this space where she was completely open to new ideas to who she actually was versus what the world expected her to be to um to 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 just this this idea of going from just pure survival and logic and rational thinking to more love and openness and creativity and a lot of those things that that you would experience if you were to shift someone more into like right brain versus left brain activity for myself when i've done you know plant medicine um and plant medicine in more of like a like a macro dosing type of context like a journey type of context what i find is that i'm more open to new ideas i'm less critical on myself i I think more freely and so more these, openly. Just to be clear, these are all the traits of someone whose ego has dissolved. Yeah, yeah. It, when, when I'm in that state where the ego isn't taking over with all these logical, rational, do, do, do thoughts, but it's almost like you transition to a state of being and it's almost like a carefree state of being where all you're doing is just basically being overwhelmed with thoughts of, of creativity or loving others or setting aside fears or setting aside personal self-judgments on yourself that might have come from, from an ego-driven state. Um, and and I, the best way I can describe it is you feel more connected to your true self and, and just, you know, less questions, less, you know, being who I, who, who the world expects me to be versus who I truly am. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult to succinctly describe, but it, it's almost as though you just set aside all the self-criticism and others' criticism and logical thought and rational thought and left brain thought and instead just, you know, float away into almost more like a peaceful, open, blissful state. It's interesting. I've heard people say dissolve the ego a bazillion times. And every time I hear that, I think it's people thinking about the sense of I, me, what I want, that kind well, of thing. Well, yeah, versus... like this lady forgot her name. Like she just didn't know her name, which was really interesting, you know. And, you know, just ju- identifying, I guess one way I could describe it is, you know, identifying yourself as a, a self-dependent, self-sufficient loner who can survive on your own versus realizing that we're all part of an interconnected human race that's that's super duper dependent on on love and and caring for others and being connected with others and and it's just you know there's another book uh called transcend the new science of self-actualization by scott kaufman and that book goes into this idea that to be fully self-actualized isn't necessarily to be you know independent or self-sufficient but to realize not only that whatever purpose it is that you're living out should be lived out in the spirit of loving others, but also in the spirit that you're dependent on others and that their purpose and their skill set is something that's blessing you. And, and basically this idea that ego seems to be um, somewhat tied to like selfishness, loneliness, self-sufficiency, et cetera, because you're in charge is something that seems to dissolve away when you're in that state. 
It's very interesting. So I heard you say that there was a moment, I think it was with plant medicine, but don't hold me to that, where you had a moment where you realized I didn't need to be the hero. Mm. What did you mean by that? That was an essay that I wrote about the hero's journey. I was, uh, I was illustrating the hero's journey through the life of Jesus Christ, right? This idea of, uh, living the ordinary life, which in his case would have been as a deity in heaven, completely comfortable, taken care of, you know, sitting with God and then being presented with this threshold to cross, you know, go down to earth, become a dirty human, get born in a diaper and poop your pants and get scarred and go through teenagerhood and all the brokenness that it means to be a human being after being a deity and, you know, meet mentors and allies and, and eventually, you know, have, have, have a, a, a battle and return with the elixir of, you know, salvation for all of humankind. And, you know, take that, that long road back, you know, similar to, to Bilbo traveling back to the Shire and the Hobbit and, and eventually come back and then ascend into heaven and, how how we look at this through the eyes of the hero's journey and related to that, you know, it, it actually was part of a plant medicine ceremony where I realized that I'm pretty hard on myself or had been pretty hard on myself up until that point in terms of trying to be the person who is going to like save humankind, who is going to, you know, really, um, not only like be the ultimate go-to source of knowledge for people fixing their bodies or their brains, but be very similar to the way that I was brought up. Like Ben, you're the white knight, Ben, you're the hero, Ben, you're special, Ben, you're perfect, Ben, you know, you, you can do it all. Like that was, that was really the type of, of talk that my parents gave to me. And it almost really like, despite that being really good for your confidence also gave me a lot of kind of like egotistical arrogance that I could, I could do everything and also a bit of um, control and micromanaging that seemed to go along with that. Like, you know, I'm the hero. I'm going to control every scenario. I'm going to save everyone. You know, my job is the most important. And one thing that happened as a part of that, that particular ceremony, which was like 28 hours long was there was this little part of my brain and this is this is really hard to describe it's it's kind of funny cuz when you're describing experiences like this where you're you're journeying in a completely different state sometimes people who have been in that state get what you're saying but people who haven't you know it's 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 really interesting um to to try and voice and detail what it is that i experienced but basically it was as though over and over and over again, there was like this little like uh, a clockmaker inside my head trying to, uh, or I, I guess maybe a, a better word would be locksmith inside my head, trying to open this little safe at the back of my brain where all those control tendencies and arrogant tendencies and egotistical tendencies resided. And, and I kept being resistant to that over and over and over and over again. And that was always followed up with like this image of me like putting on armor and holding a sword and going off to battle and preparing yet again to go and and fight the world to, you know, to 
to conquer the dragon and to be the be the white knight in shining armor that you know that that you know saves the world and i remember like it must have been eight, nine, ten times. I kept going back to that place, and the music would crescendo, and I'd be putting on. And then what would happen is I would just go into this dark place, and it was just like fire and hell and skulls and you know all the atrocities that have ever been done to humankind, and you know the Holocaust and World War Two, and you know piles of bones. And I was there fighting, like fighting against the fire and fighting against dragons and demons, you know, all these, these crazy spirits. And I was defeated every time I'd like wind up bloodied and broken and curled up in a fetal position, you know, bleeding and crying. These are all during psychedelic trips. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then like the final time that, that music crescendoed, I was getting ready to go to battle. I, I basically thought, you know what? I am. I'm not going to go to battle. Like this burden is not mine to go and save all humankind from all their sin and suffering and to be the white knight riding on a horse. And, and uh, that like the, the, the thought that came to my mind was somebody's already done this. Somebody has already, you know, died on a cross, taken on all that sin and shame and suffering. And I don't need to go off and do all that battling myself and be crucified myself all i need to do is just basically tell people about the free gift of salvation that's already been offered to them and it was like right then i felt like 20 pounds lighter i i i woke up with a smile on my face felt amazing and it was it was as though right then i just started to come out of the hole you know, whatever it was like 27 28 hour trip and i emerged from that just feeling as though a giant load had been lifted off my back, that I didn't have to prove anything to the world, that all I needed to do was love other people and share the hope that is within me and not have to worry about being perfect or controlling every scenario or, you know, being arrogant or not accepting other people. And, you know, it was, it was a really, really interesting experience. But ultimately, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that came out of it for me was love others more than yourself, be there for others, build others up and don't try to, don't try to fix people as much as just try to love people. Wow. That idea of how important love is to us as a species. It's interesting. You and I, I think use very different language for this kind of thing. Um, but I definitely get where you're coming from. But when I think about us as a species and how we need love and like, but need love as in a child, a, um, an infant will fail to thrive as they call it. If it isn't touched, loved, cuddled. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, I, I think it was, um, Oh God, I forget who said this to me on the podcast. Amazing woman. Um, and I will remember soon enough, but she said, Tom, we have a nature that requires nurture. I think it was Lisa Feldman Barrett that said that mm -hmm. to me. And I remember that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like we, the way that we as a species have evolved, like there is this need for, um, something back, but it, it, yeah. it's so real and so tangible in terms of like, you want skin to skin contact and, um, you know, the, the actual act of loving and paying attention to the child shapes its brain. And if it doesn't get that, then the brain doesn't develop right. I mean, it's crazy to think. 
it is and what what's crazy and super relevant to where we're at right now uh in in terms of social distancing remote work and a, a definitely greater degree of, of digital interaction we do thrive on that deeply connected humor in human interactivity to the extent to where we have, for example, touch receptors called Pacinian corpuscles. And these things actually respond hormonally in terms of a dopamine release and a serotonin release and a feel good neurochemical response to actual touch, right? And that, that can't be replicated via a virtual hug or via an emoticon. We have oxytocin, you know, the trusting, loving hormone that's released mm. during breastfeeding and after an orgasm, and even when we shake someone's hand or we hug them, that results in, in again, not only an anti-inflammatory response, but this feel-good neurochemical release that seems to be hardwired into all of us. We have a response to human pheromones that dictate that we can actually read, you know, for example, a, a woman can can read something as as as, as as intricate as the as the immune system compatibility of a potential mate Dude, with her based on those pheromones that are released by a man that would dictate whether or not the child that they have would have a greater amount of um of of immune system strength based on those two people having some amount of immune system um differences right like the more alike the two immune systems are the less robust the immune system mm. of the offspring might be. You talk so about have, that study where they gave the women the oh, shirts yeah. that have been slept in. They said, hey, yeah. just smell it and the, rank them yeah, in order. That or the fact that women will choose a different mate if they're on a birth control pill That's versus not, and then possibly even regret that mate later on. Like, Ooh. It's really crazy. So we have Pacinian corpuscles, and we have oxytocin, and we have these neurochemical responses, and we have pheromones, and we, we now know that there's an electromagnetic signal that's emanated by the heart that, that goes out like about 15 feet. And the brain creates a similar electromagnetic signal that is something that, that we haven't even begun to tap into when it comes mm. to science of human interaction, the potential for things like telepathy and remote viewing. And, you know, like Annie Jacobson has this book called Paranormal. Like it's an, you know, how the military has been trying to study, like how do these signals interact and mm. what are these mysteries of the human body when we're in proximity with one another or creating electromagnetic energy that others can perceive. So you take all of that and you ask like why like like why from from an ancestral or or what some might call an evolutionary standpoint would we have all these triggers built into us that respond to the presence of and the touch of other human beings mm -hmm. and the the electrical presence of other human beings well if you strive to perform your best in life bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power agility and performance that everyone expects from you and there's no better option than the most desirable advanced and dynamically capable SUV yet the third generation Range Rover Sport you guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. 
The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. It's survival, right? If you were isolated or banished from your village or from your tribe thousands and thousands of years ago, it would have meant sure death, being left out in the elements Right? And that sympathetic nervous system response that occurs as a reaction to social isolation, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little bit different than loneliness because you, you, you know, loneliness is simply a perception. It's, it's, a, it's a perception that whatever you perceive to be the amount of human, human interaction that you should be getting is not at the same level as whatever level of human interaction that you are experiencing. Right. So, um, we, we can be lonely and surrounded by 5,000 friends on Facebook or even at a cocktail party and, right. and be lonely. But this idea that we have woven into our physiology, this sympathetic nervous system, fight and flight, stressed out, high heart rate, high blood pressure, high inflammation, poor sleep response to not being able to physically interact with other humans mm-hmm. is built in because there was a time when we would die if left out in the cold and left out in the elements and and banished from our village. And so now when we're in that same scenario and we see this growing epidemic of loneliness and the host of chronic diseases and depression and suicide that seem to be springing from that, even in in a digital era where we're hyper-connected, we have to ask ourselves, like, can we replace these, these physical meaningful interactions that have so many things going on that I don't think we've even begun to dig into the science of, can we replace those with, with digital you know, zeros and ones and pixels? And, and I think that there's something to be said for the blessing of, for example, during what could have been a horrific economic crisis, you know, during COVID, it being a lot less due to the ability to be able to remote work and have Zoom parties and, you know, and, and see your friends on Facebook or whatever. It could have been a lot worse. Don't uh, get me wrong. Yeah. But we have to acknowledge that 
physical interaction and touch and eyesight and you and I being 15 feet from each other versus me on Skype up in Washington state and you down here, it's it's way different. And we, we cannot, we we cannot deceive ourselves into thinking that that can be replaced with Mm. digital interaction. Yeah, going through COVID has been, because I like isolation. Now, take this all in context of I'm married and my Mm -hmm. marriage is my greatest joy. And so all of what I'm about to say, I'm saying within the context of being in a loving marriage. And without that, I I do wonder what it would really look like. But in the context of being married, I like to be alone. I like to have my space. So when COVID kicked off, if I'm honest, be, thankfully, you know, none of my employees except one got COVID. Um, no one that I know died, thank God. And obviously my heart bleeds for anybody that did. It's absolutely horrible. Um, but it ended up being the business did better through COVID than it did before. And so it's like this ended up being this really sort of amazing reset. I told my employees I would never let them work from home. And now, of course, I'm like, well, yeah. actually, it works a lot better than I thought. I do have fears about, I think, a mixed environment will probably be difficult, but we'll cross that bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, but even I now at the you know point that we're sort of 18 months into this thing, I'm like, OK, like it's enough. Now I can feel there's some part of me that hungers to get out. And even even with my wife and obviously regular contact from her, I went to a um, chiropractor. It was the first time I'd gone to see a doctor or a chiropractor or anything in 18 months. And um, he just touched me to like, you know, figure out like where it was bothering me. It was so like it mattered. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what other word to use. It's not like I was like, oh my God, that feels so good. But it was like, whoa, like that got my full attention in the way that a casual touch from a chiropractor would not have. I was like, whoa. It's this sort of electric thing yeah. that yeah. I was like, Jesus, it's, not being touched by anybody other than my wife for the last 18 months has actually mattered in some way. It's, it's sacredness. It's the sacredness of human touch that can't be replaced by a foam roller. Like I can foam <laughs> roll, I can lacrosse ball, I can use a little you know massage percussion gun till the cows come home and I feel pretty good. But there's nothing that compares to the endorphin release and the feeling of being cared for by another human being mm. when uh, when a massage therapist is is touching you. There are, there are so many things that we try to replace with self-sufficiency or with the absence of human touch or arguably even the absence of nature that just sucks the sacredness right out of those interactions. Another example would be, and you know, uh, this might be relevant to you having been involved with, with quest nutrition, for example, and understanding macronutrients, right. And this whole idea that certain macronutrient ratios have different effects on the, on the human body. But when we look at, at nutrition, you know, I'm not an, if it fits your macros guy, I'm not an, if it fits your macros guy or what, what's it called? I, I, F, Y, M, because, you know, you, you can take something like uh, let, let's say, you know, an Atkins diet type of approach and yeah, you can achieve a, a high protein, you know, moderate fat, low carb type of scenario from, you know, CAFO based meat that's been abused and, and, you know, chickens that have lived in, in tiny cages, you know, standing in their own crap for, you know, their entire life. And, you know, cows pumped up with hormones and fed grains and, and unnatural animal products and preservatives and, you know, hefty amounts of sodium chloride, you know, all the things that you get 
in that perfect macronutrient ratio where you're just taking into account carbs and fats and proteins. And you could take that exact same macronutrient ratio and get it from like fresh tomatoes grown in the sunshine and kale and, and a wonderful regeneratively raised cow that was loved its entire life and, and fed amazing food and, you know, and lived out in the sunshine, again, feeding on fresh grass. And when you look at the biophotonic and even, even the spiritual energy that you get from eating real whole food derived from nature, as close to nature as possible, there's a certain sacredness in that and a certain, not just physical, but also spiritual energy derived from a meal like that, that you, I just don't think you can replicate if you completely just go straight to carbs, fats, proteins without Do you think there's something account. extracellular? So like I've, I've yeah. heard you make reference to the fact that you don't think the brain is necessarily the seat of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there's something going on with the actual meat? So the cow lived a mm -hmm. great life or a terrible life, mm -hmm. but by the time it ends up on my plate, mm -hmm. is there something still residing somewhere other than the cell that mm -hmm. carries with that? Somehow? Yeah, I, I think that there are elements of energy that we're now just beginning to tap into driven a lot by the emergence of interest in the mitochondria and the idea that, for example, um, photons of light can affect the activity of the electron transport chain in the mitochondria and accelerate the formation of ATP, meaning that people who are out in the sunlight a lot or who use, That's all who use infrared light are able to create energy, although those, those, those photons are a little less measurable than say like, you know, glucose or even oxygen. And then you get into sound medicine and take yet another step towards invisibility where we know that frequencies of sound and vibrations of sound can have an impact on certain organs and that certain musical instruments that are tuned to different Hertz frequencies can either uh, uh, elicit feelings of peace and love and joy or feelings of, of anger and fear and shame, even though we can't necessarily take those frequencies and, and put them into a tube. And then we get into quantum physics, right? Where we know that humans seem to be able to interact with each other over long distances via something like photonic energy. And that's where we get into some of those things like remote viewing or, or two people in two different countries having the same dream and talking about the next day. And there's something going on there that's very difficult to measure. And even when we do try to measure, it seems to change based on some of those slit light experiments where, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be very, very tricky to, to measure photons just because the mere act of measuring them seems to affect them pretty dramatically. And then we get to this idea that, well, when I eat a, a cow grown on a regeneratively, you know, a, a regeneratively run farm, you know, it was grass fed, grass finished, cared for wonderfully and, you know, and sacrificed in a humane manner compared to a cow that was abused its whole life and, and fed fake food and, you know, and then electrocuted and, and, you know, brought over to my plate, you know, it, um, there's some type of energy there that I think we have yet to even be able to measure in, for example, the realm of nutrition science. But I, I think that part of it really is spiritual. I think part of it really is the fact that as creatures on this planet, we can't disconnect ourselves from the life force of every other creature on this planet and either the positive or negative aspects. does it manifest as biology? Oh, well, I mean, I think you know the answer to that question. If you've read a book or seen the work of 
an author like Bruce Lipton who wrote The Biology of the Belief or the book I have the, not. the The Body Keeps the Score. This idea that emotions, you know, Michael Singer, uh, uh, you know, the book Surrender, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the, this whole idea that your emotions, your thought patterns, your beliefs can all drive your cells to be in either a stressed out sympathetic nervous system type of mode or a parasympathetic nervous system type of mode and that cells can become stuck based on our subconscious patterns spun in in that stressed out mode that would then cause things like calcium leakage into the cell, a change in the electrochemical balance across the cell membrane, a disruption in the ability to be able to create ATP, a disruption in overall physiology. And actually, if you look at, and I think there's something to be said about this, things like um, you know traditional Chinese medicine, uh, you see certain emotions actually associated with certain disease conditions, right? Like like bitterness and anger would be associated with rotting of the bones or low bone density or bone cancer, right? And I don't know if there's ever been an epidemiological study that has looked at, you know, profile of mood state scores and the amount of angerness and bitterness in someone and things like, you know, DEXA bone scans and bone mm-hmm. density or, you know, or bone cancer or or some type of malignancy in bony tissue. But yeah, the the link between emotions and biology is undeniable. We are not, you know, well, the, the ancient Gnostics would have argued that we are all spirit and all soul, and that's all that matters, and that we can completely disentangle ourselves from our physical bodies, and that that's not important. Well, I don't think that that's true, and neither do I believe that we can separate the physical from the spiritual and say that. Can you help me understand the difference between the physical and the spiritual? Well, I think that the physical would be uh, a, a tangible, biological uh, um, cells and tissues and flesh and, you know, and, and all of the molecules within our body that are made up of all these different atoms that we could eventually identify on the periodic table of the elements. I, I think that the physical, you know, to a certain extent is something that, that is measurable, that is tangible, that is witnessable, that is feelable. Whereas the, the spiritual is something that in a sense requires a little bit more faith to be able to believe in that, that isn't necessarily visible or measurable and yet is yet or it will never be i don't know if we're ever going to open up a human body and say oh hey look we found it here's the soul right <laughs> i don't think it's measurable I, I i do it do i think that it is something that we can experience or see i think possibly i, th- I think that that some people who have been in those type of states we were talking about earlier like an ego dissolved state or you know during a plant medicine ceremony or something like that it, it, it seems as though you do, to a certain extent, almost like cross a portal into something like a spiritual world. Um, Can I know, ask and, a really crazy question that will help me understand what you believe? Yeah. Obviously, I don't expect anyone to take this literally, but um, is the human body basically the NFT that points at the soul, which is the actual thing? Because if I know mm-hmm. you believe that the soul lives on beyond the body, mm-hmm. um, so obviously they can't be one and the same. Um, but I'm just curious, there is some linkage, right? I mean, you ultimately are going through this life, you're experiencing something, you're meant to learn something, I assume. Like there's some reason from your perspective yeah. that God has created humans very knowingly put in this situation. Right. Um, what What is then that correlation between the body? Like, do you even worry about 
the trying to find some explanation of how the two are tied or it's just like, look, that's well beyond sort of what the human mind, at least at this phase, is going to understand. And it's really kind of irrelevant. Like, how do you approach that? Yeah. So I don't think the body is bad. I don't think it's a throwaway. I, as someone who believes that God made human beings, I I don't think God would have made a human or a tomato or a tree or a thorn bush or a lake or a shark or a black widow or a platypus or anything like that as some kind of a just like a throwaway object right i don't think that heaven like because i believe that that we'll live in heaven as part of of the afterlife i don't think heaven is going to be a bunch of us sitting as ethereal spirits on a cloud with fluffy you know wings playing a harp right to me that sounds kind of boring actually um we have these amazing bodies and we have wonderful taste receptors that can taste a thousand different explosions of flavor as we sit down to a meal. And we have, you know, tactile receptors that can feel pleasure and can orgasm and can release oxytocin when we touch other people, all those things that we were just talking about. And we have the ability to be able to, to jump in cold water and feel that wonderful sensation and to sweat and get the endorphin release that happens wonderful. after that. I, well, some parts of the cold water can be wonderful, sometimes afterwards more so. Um, and, and, you know, we have hair that we can do in different ways and people have different color eyes. There's, there's all these elements of biology and physical existence that are so magical and, and so cool and so enjoyable that I don't think that's all going to be like stripped out from underneath us in the afterlife or, or when we die. But at the same time, we have, we have spirits that are housed inside these physical structures. And, you know, it, it's almost like this invisible flame that seems to drive things like our our character, our personality, our 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 values, our you know how much peace and joy and love we might have versus how much anger or fear or shame that we might have. The, this idea that the that the the physical body is just like a shell, a throwaway shell that houses the spirit is not something that I agree with. But I think that that the two coexist and that the spirit's almost like the driving force, what we, what we might call the, the chi or the prana or the life force that drives this, this human physical biological machine. And I believe like in, in terms of like, you know, heaven, I don't think it's going to be heaven. I think it's going to be heaven and earth and it's all going to be just perfect. Right, like our bodies as we have them now, but working perfectly without anger and sickness and disease and 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 all the things that kind of annoy us now. I think that we'll retain our bodies. And Do you our think spirits. that will change because those are the things that are the test? Like why? So as you were describing, okay, you've got the platypus, the black mm-hmm. widow, sharks, and all that shit. Right. And I thought, okay, if I were going to, so I I don't believe in God as we see it represented in religions. Um, there's clearly something I don't understand. So I have no problem being open-minded about yeah. that. Like, I certainly don't think I understand shit. That's for sure. Um, but as I think about it, I'm like, okay, so 
God is creating this equilibrium. There's some sort of balance. And without mm-hmm. the shark or the black widow, one thing just goes too much. And so you have this all-powerful thing that understands this notion of ecosystem. Okay, I can get behind that. I see why some things have to eat others and all that and cool. Um, but then when I think about what the afterlife is going to be in that scenario, it's actually interesting to me that you don't imagine it just being ethereal because that actually sounds quite boring. But then why would we have like anger? And we were talking about this before we started rolling. There's a flip Mm -hmm. side to everything, right? So Mm -hmm. by having sickle cell anemia, you don't shuttle the oxygen as well, but you also don't get malaria. So there's this trade-off that to me feels like human emotion. Mm Mm-hmm. Human emotion has a thing. There's a reason for it. And if you take away emotion, like people that selectively have those areas of their brain damaged, they can't even decide where they want to eat lunch. And you suddenly realize you can be normal in every single way. But if you don't have an emotional response to something, you don't have a way to make decisions. So even emotion, while it may seem like the black widow of the human experience or anger, uh, it has a role. Mm -hmm. So why do you imagine a world in which that is stripped out? I don't imagine a world in which emotions are stripped out. I imagine a world in which the negative, harmful aspects of any emotion are stripped out. What I mean by that is, for example, uh, my my son, we were actually talking about this earlier. I don't remember if, if you were here, but we were talking about how each week I give my sons a, a book mm-hmm. to read. And they, they write a little book report about that book. And it's a way of me being able to take the host of books that I read on a weekly basis and find the ones that I think would be really helpful for them. Even though I might not have time to go through the whole book with them, I give it to them. It's got all my pages folded over and so all the cool. highlights and all the underlines. They can read it through dad's eyes and see some of the things I found important. And then they write a, a book report about that book. And so every week they're learning how to use their reading muscles and use their writing muscles and, and put their thoughts to paper and also absorb knowledge in, in an efficient way. So that, you know, basically they, they can live their whole lives as voracious consumers of books, which I think is a, is a great gift to give them. Um, the book that my son Taryn is reading right now is called Radical Honesty because we've been talking a lot about telling the truth and the propensity that he has sometimes to either twist the truth or to tell a lie. And I told him, Taryn, you, you are hyper-creative. And he is. He's hyper-creative. Like, Everything from the stories he tells to the fiction that he writes, the art that he produces to the murals on his walls, super hyper creative. And I told him, well, look, that 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 creativity can manifest in two different ways. It can manifest as a negative attribute in your life and the propensity to be able to tell stories that protect you and yet might hurt others or to tell stories that allow you to get more and others to have less or to tell lies that hurt other people. And yet that same creativity can be used for great good. It can be used to inspire people and to make art and to tell wonderful stories and to create new things. And so I I think that many of the emotions that we have, right, anger can be turned towards, towards righteousness and justice. Um, Fear can be turned towards like caution or curiosity Right, like shame can be turned into, into into gratefulness with no regrets, right? There's just this identification that something went wrong and oh, I'm grateful for that learning experience because every single learning experience makes me a better person. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what I think is that we have this human propensity based on the fact that you know God didn't make us puppets. He gave us free will and you know and we do some stupid things because of that. But th- this idea is that we, we all have these emotions that can be 
for good or for bad that can be positive or negative depending on how they're manifested and i think that we won't lose those emotions that will will retain our full spirits and our character and everything like that in heaven but that the propensity the temptation to have those emotions manifest negatively will no longer be present if that makes sense it does man it is utterly fascinating i've never thought to ask like the question of what people imagine what would heaven be like like just the fact yeah. that you think of sort of the all perfect heaven is like eh, that'd be pretty boring um so when i hear you describe it it sounds more like sort of this but with yeah, some of the it's, edges it's this but perfect right and and it's like well, even what, understanding and, your definition and, of what makes that perfect is fascinating yeah and 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 you because know it would be you, different you than can mine. think about like well why isn't it perfect now like right. why the hell would god have made a world and made it perfect and then let us fuck it up right and like, your answer like, is that just that just seems ludicrous well if the world was made perfect and human beings especially uh who 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 seem to be um kind of like the more the, the most complex of creatures on this planet arguably um in terms of just like our consciousness and and our creativity and you know and and in in the fact that you know if you read the bible it says like we're the ones who are kind of made most like the image of god right and so there was something special that god did with us for some reason that that he just he wanted one creature that he could sit up there and and be super happy you know watching run around in this wonderful planet that he created and all the you know, the water and the green and the trees and the forest and the mountains and all the crazy kinds of food and fat and honey and milk and, and all these things, you know, it's similar to when I'm sitting in my house and I look out of my window and I can see my kids and my wife playing in the backyard with smiles on their faces, enjoying this, this, you know, oasis out in the forest that I've been able to create for them. Like it brings a great deal of joy to my heart. And in a way I can almost tap into, oh, this is why God did that. He just wanted to make something really cool that he could then derive a great deal of pleasure out of out of watching being experienced with with joy and happiness and love and and I get that it's almost as though you and I could create like a little like ant hill and just watch those ants all day long and just love everything they're doing and, and have created that yet if he made all that and he just like made us puppets and he could just like snap his finger and you do this and you do that and you had no free will then really you're you're a puppet right you're just basically like an like like an automaton like a robot walking around pre-programmed to do whatever it is that god pre-programmed you to do with no feeling as though you're 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 of your own independent volition enjoying all these things on your own so there had to be some amount of of free will built into the equation but by the nature of human beings being given free will that also meant that we had the opportunity to be able to not do certain things that or really i would say more appropriately to do certain things that god said wouldn't be a good idea in this case if you look at the creation story like consuming an element of the planet earth that he said not to and i, I don't know why maybe that was something that he was going to like this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that adam and eve ate and then crap hit the fan and they sinned and all of a sudden you know had to start killing animals for food and you know people started murdering each other and all this bad stuff happened uh, based on that initial disobedience, why God would have done that, like given us free will and then said, oh, but by the way, you know, you have total free will, but if you do this one thing, like things are going to go really bad. Maybe he did that so that we could show 
how much we loved him by actually giving us the opportunity to not love him in a certain way. Uh, and because he was the almighty creator that made him happy, right? That there was something that could show there on earth that people loved him more than they loved themselves. Maybe it was something that human beings are going to have revealed to them like thousands of years down the road, once they were ready for it, that mm. that was going to be something they could experience. Like, I don't know why, but what I do know is that we had some amount of free will and based on us having free will, we had the opportunity to make a mistake and we made a mistake. And yeah, it's so interesting to me hearing you talk about this. So Einstein had that famous quote, I want to know God's thoughts. Everything else is just details. Mm -hmm. And that always resonated with me. It's part of what draws me to, I don't, I don't understand math in the fucking slightest, but I find myself drawn to physics and astronomy and just like understanding the universe and like the very sort of fundamental nature of what the universe is. And as you were talking, I was like, this is like the, the arts versus the sciences approach to trying to understand God's thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's really, really interesting. And unfortunately, I have to wrap. I'm so sad. I fucking I enjoyed the life out of this conversation. And I just want to put one period on this. Even the way you hold your face is different from the last time that we met. It is utterly fascinating. I did you, on it. <laughs> not that. It's the way you're holding your face. Yeah. It is way more relaxed and hmm. just... Um, it's utterly fascinating hmm. and all leaning towards the good. It is really interesting. So whatever you've been doing, focusing on, it's amazing, dude. Uh, yeah. Keep doing your thing. Thanks, man. Thank you for being so Thanks. fucking fascinating. I always enjoy our time together. Dude, I, I could talk to you forever. Like, like you just, you, you, um, you have a way about you when you ask questions of just like opening up the portal to where we, we could literally just like riff on one question for hours. And, no um, doubt. dude, I just, I appreciate your curiosity and your intelligence and, and the fact that you've created what you've created. So thanks for being you, Tom. Thank you, brother. Until next time. Until next time. All right, everybody. Until next time, be legendary. Take care. Peace. Oh, wait, where can people find you? I can't believe we, oh, we have the end. I don't that. know. Of course. Like Google. Like, just Ben is, Greenfield. Is Google a bad word yet? I don't, I don't not, know. But not, yeah, not I don't on my think side so. of the world. No, just, just you know, you're fine. Ben Greenfield Fitness. There it is. Com. All right. And be sure to subscribe. <laughs> Until <laughs> next time, be legendary. Take care. Peace. <laughs>